0: Good morning. It is Saturday, October 24th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail.
1: Hey, good morning, Ashley. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail.
0: Michael, how's it going?
1: Going well. It's a week till Halloween.
0: Halloween? Ah, that's our benchmark. Okay, totally forgot about that. For me, Halloween's been canceled this year. Also, can we talk about the fact that, like, nothing good really ever happens on Halloween unless you're, like, under 12 years old?
1: I don't know. I think if you're, like, in college and, you you know, it's just a chance to dress up as a sexy kitty cat or whatever. I mean, good things happen, you know, in bars, which won't be happening so much this year. But anyway, come on.
0: I mean, how many people have gotten fired for stupid Halloween costumes, right? Jeffrey Toobin. Jeffrey Toobin. Oh, should we start with the Zoom masturbation incident? No, we won't. No, it's
1: it's early on a Saturday morning. Come on. Keep it classy.
0: Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We won't. In addition to Halloween being on the horizon, we're also nine days away from the election, longest nine days on record. And everyone who's feeling anxious, aggrieved, whatever you might be feeling, we've got a piece that's that's going to make you feel better slash alleviate some of your concerns in Airmail this week. It's The View From Here, written by Douglas McGrath, who is a foam, a friend of Airmail. And he's been on the show before to talk about his great piece on Goodfellas. But he is now writing about, you know, the questions that we're asking ourselves on Election Day, which is really, you know, he boils it down to this. Do we really want more of this? Do we like what this guy's been doing? Or do you think the other guy might do a better job? It's inexplicable to me, Michael, that there are any undecided voters at this point, given how obvious the choice seems to so many of us. But
1: right. Yeah. And it's, it's a very smart, witty piece by Doug, which I, I mean, those, those are two words that go hand in hand with Doug. But it's it, get, it boils down to basically, look, if you were going to, if this guy were working for you, which he is, but if you were working for your company and his contract were up, would you renew it? And I think it sort of comes down to that. But if you're one of those exotic, strange species that seem to exist still in late October 2020, known as the undecided voter, or you know one, send this piece to them.
0: Did you read, Michael, um Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, How to a great sort of call to action on her Instagram. And she said, if you know of someone who's an undecided voter or if you have someone in your life who is voting for Trump, call them, have a tough conversation with them, see if you can sway them. And I thought that was an obvious and yet also brilliant idea. I'm not going to be doing that with any of my Trump supporting relatives in the Midwest because family dynamics we won't get into here. But I thought it was kind of a brilliant idea.
1: Yeah, I know more than a few people who have called relatives and and doing the right thing, making it personal, whether it's people who who would be affected by the perhaps repeal of Obamacare, perhaps the repeal of same-sex marriage. And just reminding them, like, this is what's at stake. It's going to connect and impact people personally that you know, sons, daughters, nephews, whatever you have. So it's a strong piece. And then again, on the other hand, if if the other nice piece we have in the issue is if all this anxiety is just too much, I like the piece we have, which I think it's a nice service piece, your good friend, Laura Nielsen, about finding a refuge right now, if you've got the right amount of money, right?
0: (laughs) look, the holidays are approaching and people are trying to figure out what their travel plans might look like in pandemic times. So Laura wrote a piece for us about, I personally call it the airmail guide to renting your own private island. But Laura tracked down a bunch of islands that are available close to home here in the US and also further afield that you can rent. And you know, some of them are incredibly expensive. Some are not so bad. And she reminds us that Manhattan, after all, is an island, although it's one that we share with 1.6 million others. Anyway, Michael, if you do fancy a getaway this season, that could be one place to go are you traveling at all no 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 okay well on that note that's the story,
1: not for you i used to feel you know shame when somebody's like are, are you traveling for the holidays are you where are you going to st bart's where you go what are you heading off to aspen now i feel like i'm i'm cool because i'm not traveling right it's the smart thing to do so but yes i like this piece by laura makes me think of the swan islands in the stream which i won't sing for you but you know that is what we are Nothing in between.
0: So, Michael, on a cinematic note, we've taken another look at the life and legacy of Sue Lyon. Who was Sue? Remind us.
1: Yeah, this is a sort of fascinating and disturbing piece by Sarah Wyman in this week's issue about Sue Lyon, who you may not know the name, but you certainly remember the performance. She played Dolores Hayes in Stanley Kubrick's version of Lolita, which starred also James Mason as Humbert Humbert, Peter Sellers, and she, as 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 Sarah reveals in the piece, Sue was cast just after her 14th birthday. So there's a sort of amazing, you know, sort of how life inter- intersects uh, anecdote in here where she's growing up in California. Her best friend at the time is a young girl named Michelle Gilman. They're both 13 years of age, and they're playing Monopoly one day. And Sue's mother walks in and says, I've, "Get dressed. I'm taking you to an audition." Well, Michelle Gilman grows up to be michelle phillips of the mamas and the papas so sort of just how life has little cross currents to it but the sort of story of this piece and it's about a life sort of post me too which came too late for sue but it turns out when she's 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 cast in the film just after she's 14 and makes the film it becomes a huge hit but unfortunately for her there is a producer on the film who basically seems to have started sleeping with her. Now, he's still alive. He's age 95. Sarah calls her up and calls him up and asks for him to comment and I won't tell you what he said but she had a sad life after it. It's clear, you know, what happens to child actresses who get pulled into the system too early and surely abused by people in power. Married five times. One of her husbands was the guy who wrote Blade Runner but she eventually, sort of like living in New York, gave over her house, her apartment to homeless people and had a life battling demons. So am I getting it all there, Ashley?
0: We were talking about Sue Lyons. And what I'll say is, Michael, that, you know, this is the kind of thing like this movie wouldn't be made today. That's my feeling. And Lolita was published in 1955. And here we are, 65 years later, still sort of debating the literary merits of this novel versus the sort of pornographic elements that it entails. I think it's fair to call it pornography in some way, right? It's talking about the sexual abuse of a child. So yes. But this was such a sort of horrifying piece to read on so many levels, because Sue Lyons came into underneath such scrutiny for her five marriages and a somewhat disastrous personal life. And she passed away at the end of 2019. And her much of her legacy was really about this movie that she made when she was 14. And this really destructive life that she led after that. And it just strikes me as such an incredibly sad story. And also one that feels like an important conversation to be having during these times, especially sort of in the wake of the Me Too movement, when we're so much more attuned to how young children have been explored Exploited in how young women in particular have been exploited in Hollywood and how that has had these disastrous consequences on the rest of their lives.
1: I mean, you also think just about how the moment society has, has evolved clearly, but not enough. But when Sue Lyon is 14, 15, and she's still under the choice, influence of James Harris, the producer, you know, gossip columnists at the time covered it and wrote about it. But even then, it was sort of in this coded way. But, you know, no one's calling it out. So Dorothy Kilgallen, carries a headline, L- Lolita virus catching for Sue Lyon. And in it, she sort of intimates that Harris, the producer, is fallen under the spell, uh, per se, of Lyon. So, you know, at the time, she's only 16 at this point, but in the age of consent in the UK is even 17. But it's just, no one sort of pausing in that moment in that time and saying, yeah, I don't think this is right, especially even her parents. So it's a reminder that you can see these movies. And yet sometimes there's a a, sort of a high price paid by the people who appear in them.
0: All right, moving on into less challenging matters. All right, Michael, Well, we have a special guest today. Uh, Bill Cohan will be joining us. And he wrote a piece on Vice and the downfall of Vice and the sale of Vice. I thought I knew everything there was to know about Vice. And it turns out I was wrong. Of all the media stories that we've been following for the past several years, this one... It's as fraught and complicated as it gets, I would say.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about this piece. I worked on with Bill for a while. So let's get Bill in here and talk about it.
0: Welcome, Bill. I'll let you and Bill take it away. Welcome, Bill.
2: Thank you, Ashley. It's great to be here with you and Michael.
1: Bill, your enthusiasm is just just vibrates through the airways.
2: That's what a lot of people say about me.
1: The good thing about having you on the show is it makes me look like a crazy, manic, excited person. So I'm finally, there's someone who's to the the little left of where my enthusiasm level is.
0: He's a hard-boiled reporter, Michael. Give him a
1: break. All right, Bill. So fantastic piece this week about Vice Media. Thank you. And I'm just going to set it up a little bit for people who may have been under a rock for the last, what, 15 years. Vice Media, started by our friend Shane Smith back in the 90s as a magazine up in Montreal. Sort of somehow through a mixture of bluffs and wily sort of business savvy, it becomes kind of the brand that epitomizes all things millennial for the last 10 years or so. And there's a period where literally everyone in in, in the world seems to want Vice as a sort of like the Pied Piper who can lead them to the millennials and what they want and how to sell to them. And then And it's sort of all changes for them, so which is where your great piece comes in. So Shane Smith, Vice, and this sort of the business is falling apart for them, right? So tell us where, where you see this story and what we should know about Vice.
2: Well, I think you said it very well, Michael, there, because I think there was a period of time when Shane Smith and his buddies sort of ran a combination of millennial frat house and media have to have the people, uh, traditional media, mainstream media, the news corps, the Disney's of the world, the Hearst corporations, who felt that they could not appeal or could not attract or could not obtain the millennials of the world, uh, their eyeballs to their sites, thought that they could find salvation through Shane Smith and Vice. For a while, it really seemed like that made a lot of sense. I mean, Vice was used the proverbial adjectives that are often used to describe it, you know, edgy and exciting and different and outside the Mainstream, doing things that nobody would dare otherwise do. And for a while, it was really kismet. It was really alchemy. It was uh, incredible that uh, Shane Smith was you know, literally riding the millennial wave in a way that nobody else was doing. And then, unfortunately, he probably wrote it too hard, had a dramatic sort of come up in, uh with the Me Too movement and then mostly sort of fell apart. I mean, it hasn't completely fallen apart because it's very hard to kill any brand these days. But, you know, the buzz surrounding it, the the must-have millennial outlet seems to have vastly dissipated. Of course, Shane uh, had to give up being the CEO as a result of the uh, Me Too problems. A new CEO, Nancy Dubuque, was hired from Hearst, she had been the one on the Vice board representing Hearst and A&E when she was head of the A&E channel. So she came over to Vice to try to pick up the pieces, and that's where sort of this story jumps off
1: from. It's very difficult to kill a brand these days, as you wisely point out. But you also mentioned Disney and very smart companies like Disney, very smart people, what everything in them, like Rupert Murdoch, people who invested a lot of money, you know, as you point out in the piece, 2012, Rupert puts in $70 million for a $1 billion valuation of Vice. A few years later, Disney comes along. Squeaky Clean Disney family brand company puts in $400 million, right, for a $4.5 billion valuation. And let's just then pause and remind people then Disney then buys Murdoch's stake of 20th Century Fox. So they have a $510 million stake in Vice, right, which after the merger of Disney and, and 20th Century Fox, what does Disney do with that $510 million State bill?
2: <laughs> they write it down to zero.
1: Just for our, for our financial or non-financial folks at home?
2: It doesn't mean that the $510 million is now worth zero. It's just that their auditors believe that it probably will be worth zero at some point unless something unexpected happens. And so they advised Disney's CFO, I assume, to write the value of the investment on the balance sheet down to zero.
1: How do these smart companies believe that and get pulled in by Shane? And what was the bluff that Shane could do with these people?
2: Well, unfortunately, I've never met him. But, uh, you know, everything you read about him, everything I've watched about him, he's the ultimate, one of the ultimate, you know, salesmen and We have a president who's the ultimate salesman. So we're not unfamiliar with these types of people, but they come along pretty much regularly. When they come along in the business world, you have people uh, who sort of buy into what Shane Smith was selling, which was, you know, the access to these uh, millennials, access to their buying power.
1: You've covered Wall Street for many years. You're a money guy. It's funny, despite all the intelligence and the reports these guys generate on should they invest in something, it seems at the end, of the day it was about guys like well murdoch's in we should get in you know and creating heat around something right which was that's what a salesman does he sort of makes you think if you're not in you're going to be left behind right
2: yeah fomo fear of missing out and shane just completely took advantage of that sentiment which you would think uh people like Rupert Murdoch or Bob Iger wouldn't fall for the former CEO of Disney. But hey, look, for them, it's shareholder money. It's kind of a fling. It's hard to imagine Disney, you know, $510 million being a fling. But for them, it probably is with a market cap of whatever, $200 billion plus or something. It's a way for them to, you know, it's like Rupert Murdoch in MySpace, right? Once upon a time, thinking that that would be the next Facebook or, or whatever it was supposed to be, of course, you know, disappeared. But, you know, these uh, guys are very well steeped in, you know, old media, traditional media. That's why they're very susceptible to this whole concept of fear of missing out, of not being part of this new media uh, venture, this exciting thing that clearly looks and feels different and is attracting a lot of uh, young enthusiasm and intention. And so why not throw some money in and see if it works?
1: Well, right, sure, it's, it's putting some bets down. What's also interesting is you point out your piece, so you know you, you take a chance, but sometimes you follow the due diligence that the, that your associates put together on your on your desk about should it, what, what are the risks and rewards here, and sometimes you don't. But what's fascinating is you point out, like so, then Vice Nancy comes in and wants to do a strategic acquisition. She takes over Refinery Twenty Nine, which at one point was a sort of hot female sort of like version of Vice in a way, and yet. She then gets Vice you know before she knows it it blows up in her face because there's all these women coming forward saying that it's a toxic work culture under the previous administration, and as you reveal in your piece, Vice and Nancy get blindsided because they didn't see have full visibility into the h r reports right
2: that acquisition and the failure to perceive the toxic culture at refinery twenty nine that then blew up in their face you know within weeks of closing the deal uh, really frankly is is shocking and deeply irresponsible, uh, nearly grossly negligent.
0: Well, I have one question for you. I mean, we've talked a lot about Shane Smith's many talents. What do you think is sort of his marquee quality as a leader? And like, where was he most successful? And why is his success so difficult to replicate now in this new era of vice?
2: Well, I mean, what what is his success? I mean, his success is kind of dark success. I mean, his, his success is kind of as a con man, as a pipe Piper, as a music man. His success is not dis- similar to you know Donald Trump's success. What is Donald Trump's success? conning a large percentage of the American people into thinking he would be a great leader, a good leader, and still work in it two weeks before the election. So, I mean, Shane obviously saw a path, viewed himself as the, the music man going down that path, and, and sort of, I think he just sort of tapped into the insecurity of the mainstream traditional media that they might miss out on this generation of eyeballs that they might not otherwise see. I mean,
1: What's the the future for the company?
2: Well, I think the future is to be owned by TPG, which made a preferred stock investment. They were clever. Shane traded off the higher valuation of 5.7 for very tougher and more onerous terms, which, you know, so Shane could talk about a $5.7 billion valuation and TPG knew that, you know, if that valuation comes a cropper, which clearly it has, they're going to be protected in their investments. So
1: what is the lesson for Wall Street here? There is no lesson. I mean, they're always going to get taken by guys like this, right?
2: I mean, I think Wall Street is in the business of making bets, right, capital allocation. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you don't try, never up, never in, right? So if you're not uh, stroking the ball hard towards the cup, you're not going to get the ball in the cup and you're going to come up short. So, you know, between like Adam Newman, Shane Smith, Ryan Kavanaugh. I mean, could Ryan Kavanaugh, the former uh, Hollywood bad boy, be coming back with this thriller, which is a, a, a rival to TikTok? Or could he be on the rebound? You've got the former CEO of Uber, Travis Kalanick, who's now reinventing himself as a real estate guy and like wearing a suit. Do these guys reinvent themselves? Can they reinvent themselves? Of course, America loves nothing better than a, a story of reinvention. And Shane Smith probably took out enough money and has enough money and could and has sort of ideas, I'm sure he could reinvent himself. If Ryan Kavanaugh can reinvent himself, I mean, his company filed for bankruptcy twice and he's reinventing himself. I'm sure Shane Smith could as well.
1: Maybe he can get hooked up with Mark Burnett, just do a millennial version of The Apprentice. And then like,
2: yeah, maybe, you know, who that would be.
1: Bill, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Another great piece in this week's issue. We look forward to the next one.
2: Thank you. Ashley, nice to talk to you.
0: You too, Bill. Thank you so much. We're very excited. We have a guest on today who has not yet been on Morning Meeting, and it's high time that she joins us. We've got Duff Lambros here. She wrote a great piece for Airmail, probably about, I don't know, Duff, what was it, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, about being named Karen, although she does not go by that any longer. And now she is back to talk about what she has in common with Amy Coney Barrett. Duff, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good morning, beautiful people, and thank you very much for having me on this morning. So Duff, first of all, take us back to 2001. How did you first come into the orbit of Donald Trump. I guess it was in the 90s when you first encountered him.
3: Yes, I was a VJ on MTV and we would shoot around New York City, Atlantic City, and we would quite often shoot at the Plaza Hotel or if there was a big boxing match, we would shoot at the Atlantic City casinos. So we would, you know, get on location. The location department would set it up. But we all had a saying, like, where's the worst place to stand if you have a fear of being trampled to death. And that was between Donald Trump and a camera. The minute our camera lights were on, he would just run right over. So I've actually never had a scheduled
0: interview with him. He would appear when we had a camera and a microphone. And Duff, it seems that he was a fan of yours. What sort of first gave you the impression that you had piqued his interest? Well,
3: I don't think he was a fan, but Donald Trump is quite renowned for clipping out articles from magazines. Like I was the Revlon girl for Charlie and I would from MTV I would get a big envelope and Donald Trump would write, Hey Duff, looking good. Or, you know, if there was an article. And I always thought that was kind of interesting until I like when I heard that like hundreds of New Yorkers were getting these. And it was all in the signature black Sharpie. You
1: know it's funny you mentioned that because a couple weeks ago when Graydon was on, he said recently as a few years ago that Trump sent him this is before his president, but he sent him one where he circled a photograph of himself in the hands and he said, see, hands quite large. Like he was still, still doing it. So, yeah.
3: I know. I recently read that I actually kept the cuttings because it was so unusual. It was like, was this news for me? <laughs> like I posed for the photos. You're like looking good. And I recently learned that he had sent the exact same sentiment to Prime Minister Trudeau. So I would say, yeah, the only thing I have in common is that we can agree that Prime Minister Trudeau does indeed. He's looking good.
1: You know, in a way, though, it's really kind of like an analog like on Instagram, really. I mean, he's really ahead of his time, right? He's just sort of seeing something you did. He's giving you a little like thumbs up or a little heart. So I see the man. He's a man from the future, really.
0: (laughs) You're very generous, Michael. (laughs) So how did he get you involved in the Miss USA contest?
3: So I was appointed a judge by Donald Trump in 2001 to judge the Miss USA pageant. And I believe because I had a contract with Revlon. I was the entertainment host at HBO. So I was also Miss Coney Island and I won the Ernest Bergnine Like contest and I was Miss Guinness. So I had a few titles. So perhaps that is what put me in his orbit. But judging a beauty pageant was an interesting experience. And I'm usually up for anything from an anthropological perspective.
0: As evidenced by your reign as Miss Coney Island and Miss Guinness, yes? Mm -hmm, Exactly. I'm also a polar bear,
3: a Coney Island polar bear. So yeah, I mean, as the late Hunter S. Thompson said, buy the ticket,
0: take the ride. It's a good mantra for life. Mm -mm. So here we find ourselves in 2020 with another Trump-appointed judge being at the center of the news cycle. Do you have any advice for Amy Coney Barrett?
3: Well, I would say you're going to have to reach across the aisle and work with your fellow judges. One thing that I found out after I was a judge was that Trump instilled the Trump rule. And he is on tape saying that since he owned the beauty pageant, he had the right to go in and prejudge the contestants. And so he said they were picking all the, you know, the smart ones. And I wanted the hot ones. And you no, know, a pageant, there are several angles and one is education. And so he's like, no, that's not what I'm going to do. So he instilled the Trump law, which he said he would pick the 10 finalists, make sure that they would make it to the finalist. And that he said that he could also, as the owner, he had the, he just thought he could just walk in on these young women while they were in the dressing room. So that's what he called the Trump law. And And I am hoping that Amy Comey Barrett, who resides in Indiana, and this happened in Gowrie, Indiana, that she remembers that voyeurism is a crime in Indiana, punishable by two and a half years. So, as she stated in the confirmation hearings last week, that no one is above the law.
2: (laughs) That's
0: great. All right. Well, that was an illuminating conversation with Duff. Duff, thank you so much for joining us. Before we head out, Michael, I'd love to know, is there anything that you would potentially describe as a best this week? Just give me something that's going to make my life a little bit better.
1: Yeah. You know what I'm going to give you? If you haven't watched the new Aaron Sorkin film, The Chicago 7, I watched it over the weekend. I thought it was terrific. And you've got Mark Rylance doing his usual incredible performance this time as Bill Kunstler. You've got Sasha Baron Cohen, who I think was unbelievable as Abby Hoffman. And you've got Frank Langella, who again always like just transforms in a role as Judge Julius Hoffman, but Sorkin is the master of the courtroom drama from A Few Good Men to even when he just redid To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway a couple of years ago. So terrific. Piece of writing doesn't always stay true to the courtroom record, but that's that's another story. But super terrific performances, great pieces of writing. How about you?
0: Well, uh, this isn't the most uplifting thing, but it might make your life better. I did spend a couple hours this weekend watching *The Social Dilemma*, which is the new docudrama from Jeff Orlowski about social networking and how we spend all of our lives on our cell phones. Have you seen this, Michael?
1: I did. I watched it a few weeks ago. Brooke and I watched it. I hear the angst in your voice, right?
0: <sighs> This movie was a big wake-up call for me. Thank you to all the brave tech veterans who came on and and talked about exactly what's going on. Because at the end of the day, it's helpful just to be reminded of the fact that your phone is really a device for the delivery of advertising, right? In many ways, sort of at a baseline level, that's what social media is out there to do. Um, And while we are connecting with people and it is helpful in many ways and we're discovering lots of new things, the primary purpose of these brands is to make money through advertising. So sometimes it's just helpful to be reminded of that
1: fact. Yeah, it's a pretty sobering high opening look at what all this is uh, effect is, is happening on all of us. But most importantly, I think kids and also our social discourses. One of the guys said, who was one of the original Facebook founders, they say, the guy's not being flipped. He said, what is your biggest worry about all of this? And he just says, civil war.
0: Was that Tim Kendall?
1: I don't remember. I saw thought if you would uh, remember more than I would, better than I would.
0: Yeah. My husband went to a business school with Tim and it's it was funny. We were watching it and we were like, oh, hello. Yeah. He was the chief monetization officer, I think, of Facebook back exactly. in Exactly. Yes,
1: that's who it was. Speaking Speaking of social media, I have a confession. Please. I need to come clean with the audience here and you because I can't hide anything from you. And my connection here to what we're just talking is, is social media because it features by this character in this show that I've now watched three episodes of. Wow. I'm just going to confess, Emily in Paris.
0: Oh, you're not doing it. I did it. I did three episodes really? of it. Oh, my God.
1: It's kind of like eating, like, a big thing of jelly beans.
0: I watched one episode, and it was just so incredibly painful for me.
1: I didn't say it wasn't painful, but I wanted to see where it was going.
0: You might be hate-watching it, Michael. You might be hate-watching it.
1: Maybe I'm... I don't know. Maybe I'm enjoying it more than I want to say. I just...
0: Okay. I have one more thing to recommend and it's really embarrassing.
1: No more embarrassing than me talking about Emily in Paris.
0: Oh, it's pretty bad. Okay. So my birthday was this week. My mom got me a Roomba. Do you remember the Roomba? It's a robot vacuum cleaner.
1: I remember it. I never had one. Yeah.
0: This thing's golden. Okay. My mom got it for me on Prime Day on Amazon and you can program it to vacuum your house when you leave. So whenever I leave to drop my daughter off at school, I have that thing running the whole time that I'm gone and I come back and it feels like a housekeeper has just been there laboring away over my floors. It's incredible. It, you know, if anyone's struggling with housekeeping during these COVID times, I highly recommend.
1: There's got to be a German word for what it is to be at a certain age in your life and you get a gift like that for your birthday and that makes you happier than any other gift.
0: Mm-hmm. Michael, honestly, I think it's just that as material possessions become less important as you age, or at least I hope that that's the case, things that improve your quality of life are the ones that have real value or things that improve the way in which you you see the world. So great books, great music, great experiences, and the goddamn robot vacuum cleaner. Okay, by all means, come on over. You're not going to believe this thing. My kids have named it. Charlie named it John and Cecily named it Bianca Flitter Zach, And it's like our pet.
1: Bianca Flitter Zach.
0: Yeah, Bianca. She's very creative.
1: You've got a Roomba and 27 chickens in the backyard.
0: Yeah, I got 18 chickens and uh, a Roomba and like a full house. Life is good.
1: So it really is Green Acres for you. <laughs> Pretty
0: much. Pretty
1: much. You and Jaja Gabor would be, you know. Oh boy. It's my Netflix pitch coming at you right now. I'm, I'm going to reboot Green Acres with a savvy magazine editor who is now out in the country with a Roomba and 17 chickens.
0: Okay, let's develop that together and let's sign Emma Stone. I want Emma Stone to play me, obviously. And we should sell this to HBO. Is anyone listening? Guys, uh, we'll have our agents get in touch. Michael, on that note, would you please read us
1: out? Oh, uh, wait, can I do these two women?
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: Go ahead. Wait. So, you know, speaking of extraordinary women, actually, like yourself, there's two that we have in the issue this week that I also want to talk about. And they're very briefly sort of two extraordinary women. One was a great life. One was just sort of another woman who, who died recently. The first is this woman, Marguerite Littman, who I'd never heard of, but fascinating life. She was born in Louisiana and she what, she would describe herself as a zigzag celebrity. So she's one of these women who sort of connected everyone and everyone basically in the 20th century who mattered knew her. Truman Capote supposedly modeled Holly Golightly on her. Liz Taylor when she was starring in uh, as Maggie and Cat on a hot tin roof took diction lessons from her and how to get a Southern accent down. With Princess Diana, she started the AIDS Crisis Trust in 1985, which sort of then she and Diana later auctioned off all Diana's dresses for charity, for the charity. So fascinating woman. I highly encourage you to read it. The other one on the other side is Sherry Height, who you probably best know for writing the Height Report on Sexuality. But before she became a sexologist, basically, as Michael Callahan writes, she was the model for a artist called Robert Guinness, who was kind of one of these 1950s, 60s artist illustrators. And he illustrated, if you can look them up, great movie posters for, oddly enough, Breakfast at Tiffany, but also Barbarella, Diamonds Are Forever, many of the James Bond films. And he illustrated these kind of Mad Men era, leggy, lean women, exotic, beautiful women. And Sherry Height was one of them and was one of his muses. So great little piece of cultural reporting and writing.
0: Fascinating stories, fascinating lives. It's nice to be inspired, isn't
1: it? It is.
0: Michael, we're officially like our grandparents. We get really upset when we can't find the obituaries in the paper.
1: Yeah, what's the old joke? I start with the obituaries every morning. If I don't find my name in it, it's going to be a good day. (laughs) I got you to laugh. See, some people don't know that old uh, vaudeville.
0: I love it. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, will you please read us out?
1: Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet, and we have special thanks to Joe Persicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.News, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with a new edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure you subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you download or subscribe to podcasts you love. Most of all, thank you for joining us.